Welcome to the World Art Now podcast, exploring the world through the material culture of its people, in association with Michael Backman Limited. Hi, it's um, Sarah Corbett. I'm here today with Michael Backman. Hi, Michael. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Um, looking at the things involved in your job, lots and lots of research and a huge library of books. And often when we sit in the gallery, I wonder, which one's your favourite of those books? Hmm. Yeah, um, you're right. We, we've got hundreds and hundreds of books here on the premises and they're terribly important for, for what we do. But um, yeah, you're right. Um, you would think that I'd say, oh, no, no, I don't have a favourite book, but I do. I actually, there's one book I absolutely love, and I think it will always be my favourite book. And in fact, it was one of the first books in this whole area that I ever bought. And it's, I'll tell you which one it is. It's called Court Arts of Indonesia by Helen Ibitson Jessup. And I, I, it was published in 1990, and it was to accompany an exhibition at uh, the Asia Society in, in New York and then it travelled around and so on. And I, I, I got this, I, I was at the time living in Australia and, and I'd, I'd travelled a lot to Indonesia and I'd collected a few things and so on. I certainly wasn't a dealer. I mean, by training, I'm an economist. I was working as an economist then. In fact, I think I was a political advisor, actually. But um, I came across this book. I think I saw it in the National Gallery of Australia's bookshop, and, and I bought it. And I absolutely just fell in love with every page. I, I just uh, it, It's the most magnificently produced book uh, of its time, and I don't know if it's even been superseded. It's very well written. It's very clear. Uh, but the the photography, I, I think, is so. It, it's just so astounding. Uh, you've got, you know, whole topping masks, dance masks from Central Java, which are blown up to an entire page. And I should say that the the book itself is is like a coffee table style book. It's in um, A4 size and so on, or probably bigger. Uh, but the the photographs are wonderful, and, and there's black and white photographs to to match the objects and so on. Early pictures, and it covers the length and breadth of Indonesia. Indonesia is just such a, a, a diverse country. It's very large. A lot of people don't realize that, in fact, it's the world's fourth biggest country by population. Uh, that's uh, China is, is the biggest, obviously, then India, then the US. And then comes Indonesia. Um, actually, after that comes Pakistan and, and Nigeria, which often people don't realize. Nigeria has well over 200 million people. Indonesia uh, today has around 267 million people. It's a huge place. And uh, it's spread across an archipelago, uh, it's sort of sandwiched in between Southeast Asia or, or, the, or the Malay Peninsula of Southeast Asia and Australia. Uh, there are hundreds of islands, hundreds of ethnic groups uh, with... Um, each with uh, often their own uh, dialects and so on, which are often mutually unintelligible to, to even their neighbours. And the other really important thing from a geopolitical perspective is that it's actually the world's biggest Islamic country. And a lot of people don't know that, that um, when we think about Islam and, and, and so on, we often think about Saudi Arabia and the Middle East and whatever, but most of the world's Muslims, least east of Karachi, uh, nowhere near the Middle East. And so the world's biggest Islamic country is Indonesia. And uh, that 
means also that uh, being so far from Mecca, the Indonesians are some of the world's greatest travellers, and they are every single year. And this has been the case for well over 100 years. They are the world's biggest supplier of Hajj pilgrims each year, by a long shot. Because uh, the Hajj operates on a uh, quota basis. And Indonesia, being the world's biggest Islamic country, gets the world's biggest quota for, from the Saudi Arabian uh, authorities for when it goes to um, who can visit Mecca and who can't. So um, it's a fascinating country, um, probably uh, not nearly uh, as understood as it should be. And, and a, a great access point is, is the culture and the material culture of, of the country. So this book, um, which I bought, I suppose, what, 30, 30 years ago now, has been just, to me, a, a guide ever since. And I don't think it's been superseded since. It covers, um, being the court arts, it talks about uh, the, the, like the weapons and the textiles and, and the objects, and the beetle nut sets and all of those sorts of things that were used in the courts of the Indonesian archipelago. And there are many, many different courts. There are uh, often even on one island, there could have been six or seven courts or more. So you had lots of silversmiths and goldsmiths and other artisans were operating to produce beautiful things for the courts. And of course, the courts required um, objects for gifts to, to be given to diplomats and, and visitors and so on. So you had hundreds, if not thousands of artisans um, at any point in time across what is today known as Indonesia producing exquisite, beautiful, luxury goods. And this book just encapsulate, encapsulates that. Um, it draws on items from private collections and uh, from the National Museum of Indonesia, from US collections and uh, collections in Holland and, and so on. There's a lot of it's of gold, silver, um, and many things um, that you wouldn't even expect uh, have been adorned luxuriously, such as the leather puppets, the wayang kulit. Some of them are actually studded with diamonds and, and so on. There are weapons here with diamonds and rubies and, and so on. It's, um, it's just spectacular. I love it. I absolutely love it, as you can probably tell. And I, I, like I said before, I don't think I've seen a book uh, that's been published since which has quite captured my imagination. Do you think that seeing this publication, which clearly has had an impact, has led to your interest in this region as a dealer and as a historian studying the intricacies of the material culture and the lives of the Indonesian diverse groups of people? Uh, very much. Um, to me, when I bought this book, it was so evocative and, and so romantic. And, and because at the time I was living in Australia, uh, it was, you know, the neighbour, uh, other than New Guinea, is Indonesia. The, uh, so Australia has the world's biggest Islamic country, just offshore, essentially. So when I first went overseas uh, from Australia, I tended to go to Indonesia a lot. And I travelled, uh, uh, most people go to Bali, and um, I, of course I did that. But I also travelled to Borneo and uh, to Sulawesi and across Sumatra and to Aceh and uh, right through Java and, and elsewhere. Um, and it, it so captured my interest and the diversity and the accessibility of the place as well. And it was such an other. It was like an accessible other. And in my very formative years, this was uh, terribly important. So going forward... Um, because it really captured me when, when I was young, uh, I suppose it has been quite a, almost like a roadmap for the rest of my life. Uh, as an economist, 
Uh, and then as a writer of books, I've written eight books and probably six of those related to Indonesia, at least in part. But back, back then I was writing not about art, but about uh, the economics and the politics of the place. Um, I did a lot of work on the Sahato family, for example, who President Sahato ran the country for uh, 20 or 30 odd years as an effective dictator. And during that time, his family amassed uh, you know, billions of dollars worth of uh, companies and, and so on. Um, and I did a lot, a lot of research on that to track, track down all of the companies and uh, what they had and where it was and, and so on. Um, so I've worked professionally on Indonesia for most of my life, as well as the region, of course, more broadly. And then, of course, now as a dealer based in London, a lot of what we have often is Indonesian or certainly from that region. Um, also, uh, I, I started out um, as a collector. I still do collect. Uh, and I, I've always loved uh, silver and, and gold from Southeast Asia and, um, and particularly from Indonesia. So it's always informed that process as well, me as a, a dealer, as a collector and also as an economist. And this book is um, really about status items. These are things yes. that were shows of wealth or shows of generosity if they were gifts rather than the pieces that would be the material culture of the wider population of Indonesia. It focuses <clears throat> very much mm. on courtly and high-end pieces. That's exactly right. Uh, of course, most people couldn't afford these sorts of gifts, would never have seen them, wouldn't have had access to them and, and the like. Uh, there's something quite fascinating in Southeast Asian culture, and I, I'm, I'm actually writing a book at the moment which we'll touch on probably in another podcast, but. Uh, when it comes to uh, regalia-type items in Malay and other Indonesian-type related um, cultures, your possession of the regalia, such as uh, maybe a, a, a special betel nut set or a, um, a, a special sword or so on, your possession of these items confers on you the right to be the ruler. It's not the other way around. So the causality is different to what we're used to in a European or Western setting. In the UK, for example, you become the queen or the king and therefore you get the crown. But um, in Southeast Asia, this is reversed. You, you are the king or the queen because you've got the crown. So the regalia, or as they call it in Indonesia, the pusaka, the, the ritualized heirlooms of the, of the family, confer on you your right to rule. And so a ruler could not be seen as, as the legitimate ruler unless they possessed these objects. So when the Dutch came, what they did was to, to absolutely make sure that they were in control and that the local indigenous rulers no longer were in control was they took away the regalia, they took away the pusaka and they either took it back to Amsterdam and, and uh, used it to populate the museums of, of the Netherlands or they took it to Batavia, which is now Jakarta, and put it in what became the National Museum. And even today, the, uh, the government of Indonesia is very loath to release some of these objects back to the regions in case it um, leads to regional instability and so on. Like the state Chris of Gyanya, which was a, a little... Um, uh, like a little uh, kingdom in Bali, has the most stunning kris, it's, it, which is like a sword, covered in gold, uh, set with rubies and diamonds and emeralds, 
and uh, that's now in the museum in in Jakarta and very very rarely if at all will the government in Jakarta allow that to go to Bali unless it uh, because it could well fuel secessionist movements or there's a sneaking suspicion that it might actually allow the rulers there to rule again to come back into yes, power yes to, to to sort of give them the power so it's almost like um these objects have like an aura, like a power, which confers on a would-be ruler the right to rule. And the British uh, did this as well. When, when they're in Malaysia, for example, uh, the, um, at, at one point, the, the, the claimants for the throne of Kedah, one of the um, small sultanates in, on the Malay Peninsula, was split uh, between, I think, two brothers. And one of them captured the, uh, the regalia, uh, the other one was decided to be probably the more rightful ruler, but the people wouldn't see him as the right ruler until he was able to physically possess the regalia. And the British had to uh, persuade the, the, the pretender to the throne to give up the regalia, to give it to the ones that they felt were, were or to the person who was the right ruler. Um, and unless they could do that, the the rightful ruler wouldn't be seen as the legitimate ruler unless he had... legitimately accepted yes. by the population. Absolutely, yes. So the power actually lies with the objects rather than They're with very the important, people. very important. Whereas here in London, if you lose a crown or lose a whatever, you just get another one made. Uh, go to the jewellers and get another one. Uh, that's not the case in Southeast Asia. They're hereditary items mm. and they hold that um, seat of power. Yeah, well, yes. Yes. Well, they're seen as magical and uh, the objects are magical. And <laughs> this is why I love this book, because I feel like it's uh, page after page after page of just magical, romantic items, because they, they're not dead. They're not static. Um, they, these things are so alive. And, and the people who owned them and had them, they meant so much to them uh, because they conferred on them this, this power. The, these items were a source of power. And it's just so different to how we look at objects in, in, in like a European Western type uh, concept whereby these objects for us are like the trappings of royalty whereas in Southeast Asia these uh, confer royalty. They're the core of it. Mm. So in this book yes. I can see from sitting opposite you there's some stunning images. Yes. Is there one standout piece oh, that gosh. it makes your heart sing when you see it? Like I want it, like I should have it. The um, one thing in this book <laughs> that you just, yeah, feel the most wondrous warmth towards. Ah, yeah, if, if you could add it to your collection. Oh gosh, now that's a good question. Um, it was easier to say uh, which was my favourite book out of the <laughs> probably 2,000 that I own, but which object do I... I'm sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> okay, I found one which every time I look at it I'm astonished by it, and it's a Balinese rebub. A rebub is a stringed instrument. It, it probably dates to the 19th century. And it's from the, the, the kingdom of Klung Kung in Bali. And what it is, it's a, it's a coconut shell, which has been turned into sort of like the body of this instrument. It looks probably like a, I don't know, what would you say that looks like? Um, is it like a... It, when you get close enough to see how beautifully carved it is, yeah. then... Um, guess in some form it's similar but not the same as a violin or yeah an I keep oud wanting or, to say that yeah but it, it's not a violin no, it's the body not. shape is very very different 
So the body shape takes after a, a coconut shell which has then been covered in gold and it's all been cut out uh, so that you've got this sort of scrolling foliage and uh, flower motif all over it and at the heart of each flower is uh, either a ruby or a sapphire or a diamond then you've got uh, like a very long stem which is where the strings of this instrument would go up and you've got the tuners and, and, and so on and all of that is sheathed, so that's made of turned wood, then it's covered in gold as well, and then you've got the bow as well, and the bow looks like a conventional bow, but also the stem of that, or the handle, is uh, encased in, in gold sheet. So it's quite a spectacular thing. So that's certainly one thing which I really, I love. I, I saw one of these for sale once, um, when I was much younger and poorer, uh, in a shop in, I think it was in, it was in Sarawak actually, and uh, it was one of those situations where the dealer takes you to the back and, and then produces something which you just think, oh my God, I, I can't believe, <laughs> I can't believe that thing. Um, but I think, in fact, he told me it was sold, so there was no possibility of even owning it, unfortunately. So your lack of budget at the time didn't come into the transaction? Uh, no, <laughs> no, uh, no, but I do think about it very often. I often think, you know, you could write the most wonderful coffee table book of all of the items you didn't buy but should have. That would <laughs> be quite a fascinating, sort of like a catalogue of failure. Um, here's a, a, another thing which I, it fascinates me. It, it's, it's a solid gold crown uh, from the... Um, there, there was like a small sultanate called Demak on, on the north coast of Java uh, which only lasted for about I think 150 years so uh, but it was an important trading port and this crown dates to the 16th century and it's in the shape of like a fez like a North African fez uh, all that they would also wear in Turkey and Egypt and so on and so it, it's, it's like sheet uh, gold and I like this object because it underlies or underpins the, the close connections, uh, probably because of the Hajj, but also because of trade between, say, North Africa and Southeast Asia and the Middle East and, and so on. And it really is a, it's a direct copy of a Middle East and North African Turkish type sort of hat. A tabush. A tabush was, is another name for it, that's right. And, uh, but what's so instructive is that it is engraved all over with what I see as very fine Malay chasing. Now of course it's from Java, uh, but uh, and, which is not Malay, it's Javanese, but in my opinion the work on this is, is actually Malay and it could well have been done by a Malay artisan who has probably come down from Sumatra and or possibly from Malacca because Demak in the 15th century had uh, very close trading connections to the Sultan of Malacca on the Malay Peninsula, which at that time was probably the most important trading port in all of Southeast Asia. There's certainly some wealth and status in that piece. It's mm. absolutely stunning. Yes. Quite a chunk of gold too. Yes, and this is something, I mean, it really is Indonesian and probably belongs to Indonesia more rightfully, but, but is now in uh, a museum in, in Holland, in the Netherlands. Hmm. Well, thank you for sharing an insight into your favorite book certainly um, looks as if it's got plenty to enjoy and yeah. um, good informative books for people who work within this world of objects from around the world and material culture and understanding it are essential to what we do and finding a good one is always so rewarding. Absolutely. Thanks Sarah. Thanks. You have been listening to the World Art Now podcast. 
in association with Michael Backman Limited. To hear more, visit worldartnow.com.